Before we start, we want to let you know we've launched a Patreon page where supporters can receive perks like bonus episodes and exclusive content. Because Pop Fiction Women is our passion project, a place where we give women space to show up and offer in-depth analysis in the ways we're used to hearing about male creators and their characters. We delve into creativity and psychology with a dash of astrology, and we have so much fun doing it. Just two friends breaking down books, movies, and shows like Normal People, Fleabag, and I May Destroy You. Every single aspect of this podcast we do ourselves, from the preparation to the recording, from the editing to the social media promotion. So we're adding a Patreon platform because we want to keep making the show you love and hopefully expand it even further. So please consider becoming one of our most complicated fans and contributing on Patreon. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash popfictionwomen. On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women, or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. Today we are talking with Marianne Cronin. Marianne Cronin grew up in Warwickshire, England. She studied English at Lancaster University before earning a PhD in Applied Linguistics from the University of Birmingham. She now spends most of her time writing with her newly adopted rescue cat sleeping under her desk. When she's not writing, Marianne can be found performing improv in the West Midlands, where she now lives. Her debut novel, The 100 Years of Lenny and Margot, is to be translated into over 20 languages and is being adapted into a feature film by a major Hollywood studio. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Marianne. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We are so excited to talk about this debut of yours. So if you could just start by sharing a little bit about the 100 years of Lenny and Margot for our listeners. Of course. So The 100 Years of Lenny and Margot tells the story of 17-year-old Lenny Petterson. She's living in the Glasgow Princess Royal Hospital and she has a terminal illness. But Lenny does not let that stop her. She is an absolute firecracker of a personality. She's cheeky, she's irreverent, and she spends her days in the hospital getting into mischief and trying to befriend as many people as she can, including the hospital's lonely chaplain, Father Arthur. And they spend a bit of time debating the mysteries of life and death and egg and crest sandwiches. And when Lenny joins the hospital's art class, she meets Margot who is an 83-year-old purple pyjama-wearing fruitcake-eating rebel. And between them, 17-year-old Lenny and 83-year-old Margot have been alive for 100 years. And when they realise this, Lenny and Margot decide to embark on a project to paint 100 paintings, one for every year that they've been alive. And with each of these paintings comes a story. And so we dive into the wild and wonderful lives that Lenny and Margot have lived that have taken them to the hospital and to the very final days of both of their lives. Wow, that is a perfect pitch. And let me tell you, you sound more seasoned than many of our repeat authors who have been doing this for a long time, you really have your story down. And I guess that's because you lived with them for so long in getting to this process. But that was very impressive. (laughs) 
<laughs> Thank you. I had to film um, a video yesterday for one of my international publishers. And so I said that like five times over. Oh my so goodness. I so think it's... it's just, it's deeply ingrained now. Well, that's wonderful. So we want to start with your protagonist, 17 year old Lenny, who despite being dealt the short straw in life, approaches every situation with optimism, humor, and an open heart. She is definitely, as we like to say, complicated. She's physically weak on the outside, but as you mentioned, she's a firecracker, funny, irreverent on the inside. You said in your acknowledgments, I'm going to read, but most of all, I am grateful to Lenny for visiting me that January night. She arrived a fully formed voice in my head, and this story belongs to her. She kept me company when I was lonely. She reflected my fears when problems were found with my heart, and sudden cardiac death was being mentioned with alarming regularity. She taught me patience and persistence. She brought all of this magic into my life. So we'd love to hear more about Lenny, your inspiration, and more about, obviously, this beautiful passage that you've added to the acknowledgments about her. Ah, oh, thank you. I sometimes feel like it sounds a little bit spooky to say that Lenny visited me in my mind, like I should have a kind of crystal ball and lots of scarves. But um, yeah, so I was working on my master's degree at the time and I'd been to the doctors just for a routine appointment. And I sort of mentioned my chest just felt a little bit tight, a little bit fluttery. And they checked my pulse and they were like, it's about 190. So either you go to hospital now or we call an ambulance. Those are your choices. So I just drove myself because I didn't want the kind of drama of an ambulance. And from then on, it was just a series of tests and hospital visits and I had to run on a treadmill while wearing an ECG machine in just my bra. Um, So (laughs) there was a whole gamut of tests. And while I was having these done, I really kind of started to panic about my own mortality. And I started to think about what must it feel like to know that you're going to die and to spend all your time in these hospitals. And I started paying attention to the nurses, the patients and all of those little things. And so when I was writing a master's essay and I just had this kind of thought about the link between terminal illness and the terminal at the airport. And so the first line of the book is the very first thing I ever wrote for the book and I just kind of sat down and she was just there and it sounds like such a cop-out because you know if you're trying to learn creative writing there's nothing less annoying than someone saying oh it just happened but it really felt like she just popped into the back of my head and so I just started feverishly writing. Wow I love that. And I did love the opening line. Uh, I love that that's the first thing you wrote and it's stuck. So in addition to Lenny, of course, we have Margot. As you said, she's feisty, rebel-hearted, 83-year-old who's lived this fascinating and eventful life of joy and heartbreak that we get to see in these sort of flashbacks. These two, certainly on the surface, seem like an unlikely pair of women to become friends and create a story around as you have. So if Lenny came to you one night as you wrote in January 2014. (laughs) We'd love to hear more about how Margot came about and really also how you were able to capture the voice of an octogenarian so well, which clearly you are not. Thank you. Um, so yeah, so as I was saying, you know, Lenny was this real kind of, it felt like she visited me, but Margot is definitely a process. And when I started writing, I knew that I wanted Margot to be Lenny's opposite in many ways. I wanted her to be kind of the calm to Lenny's chaos. And I wanted to have a kind of gentleness about Margot. And so in the first drafts, Margot was really, really boring. She cried all the time. She was just a bit of a downer. So I kind of realized that what I was coming up against was like my own ageism. You know, I was 22 when I started writing and I had such a limited view of what an older person 
person might be like and how they might have lived and what worlds they might have experienced. And so with Margot, it became a case of pushing myself to see what I could let Margot do, if that makes sense. So really letting Margot come to the fore and her needs and her opinions come to me. And yes, it was a lot longer. I think it wasn't until about draft five or six that Margot really started to kind of feel like a person in her own right and not just the foil to Lenny. I did a lot of research. I watched a lot of documentaries about aging. Mad Men was actually a huge help, <laughs> which sounds a bit strange for Margot's early years because she grows up around the same time that Mad Men is set. And so it helped me to be like, these are young people in the 50s and they have full lives and they're fully complicated people. And so Margot can be that too. Wow, Mad Men is the inspiration. I would not <laughs> have thought that. <laughs> As Kate said, these two women are kind of an unlikely match, but their relationship is not defined by the difference in their age, but by the things they have in common. Obviously, one of them being facing life's scariest obstacle, death, but they also share a worldview, a sense of humor, and are both terminally ill. Finding comfort in friends is something that really resonates for us. We love a story of good female friendship. Tell us more about why you wanted to explore that bond instead of just making this Lenny's story. I think for me, when we first meet Lenny, she's really lonely. She doesn't have any friends visiting. She doesn't have any family. And some of that is just through misfortune. And some of that is through Lenny's own machinations. You know, her father has tried to visit and, and she's seen him kind of suffering at watching her suffering. And she's kind of sent him away and said, you go and live your life because there's no point just staying here and watching me die. And so for me, the whole book really is Lenny's journey from going from completely alone to creating a found family so that by the end of the novel, she has not only Margot as this kind of maternal figure, but she has Father Arthur as a kind of paternal figure. She has new nurse who is kind of a sister. And so for me, the book was always going to be about friendship. I knew from meeting Lenny, this lonely girl, that it was all about helping her find her people and find who she was meant to meet. And I think for me, friendship, is, especially female friendship, is one of those things that often we see in mainstream films quite combative and conflictive and wrought with jealousy and backstabbing and all those kinds of things. And maybe I've just been really fortunate, but that's really not been my experience of friendship as I've grown up as an adult. And I think for me, Lenny and Margot are really just soulmates in a non-romantic sense. I think that was a real joy for me in finding that connection between them. I love that. There's so many layers. The instinct to push people away is something I can relate to even without being in these circumstances. And then finally really letting someone in. And then I love the soulmates as friends beyond romantic. Something I'm behind. Yes, we talk about that a lot. And like you said, this really is at its core, I would say a love story between Eleni and Marco. But as you mentioned, you were also able to craft this really interesting set of supporting characters that shows us, like you said, that it's your found family or that you can find family in unexpected places. So, you know, she's kind of got this ragtag crew that she's assembled in the hospital because she doesn't really have support outside from family. And you mentioned new nurse with her cherry red hair and her fun socks and Paul the Porter and his tattoos. And of course, as you said, Father Arthur, who oversees this always empty hospital chapel, which she loves to make fun of him for, in addition to ribbing him about religion and faith and asking him these big questions. And I thought the relationship between her and Father Arthur was really one of my favorites in the novel. So I would love to hear more about your inspiration for his character and what you wanted to explore in terms of faith with their relationship. I love Father Arthur as well. He was definitely one of my favorite characters to write. So the first inspiration for the hospital chapel that he's in actually came from one of my own visits to a hospital chapel when I 
was visiting a relative and another relative wanted to go and light a candle for them and the chapel was completely empty and there was just this older priest there and it just had this real sense of complete loneliness and I've never forgotten that image of this completely empty chapel and so when I started writing with Lenny I knew that because obviously she's so young and she's terminally ill she would have all these really big questions about life and why is this happening to me and is there a bigger plan and so Father Arthur really developed as kind of the foil to all of her really cheeky questions and doubts and Father Arthur was actually loosely inspired by a really good friend of mine. I met him at university and when we started university I'd spent my childhood primary and secondary schooling or you know first and high school at Catholic school but both of my parents are atheists so I had this really confusing religious view. I had this kind of incredibly strict religious schooling, very chilled out non-religious home life and so I'd come out of school very like what on earth do I believe? What's happening? (laughs) And my lovely friend he was incredibly religious but we just became friends basically by accident and we used to stay up at night just kind of talking about what we believed and what we didn't believe and debating and it was all just done in the spirit of pure friendship. It really taught me that you can be friends with someone and respect them and still have completely different worldviews. And so with Father Arthur, that's one of the things I wanted to try and capture. So Lenny is cheeky and she does kind of push him a little bit, but she's never outwardly disrespectful to him. And he lets Lenny just be Lenny. You know, Father Arthur is like, come to me, come with these questions. I'm going to give back as good as I can. And I'm going to tell you my honest, true answers. And I think that's quite refreshing for a religious character. You know, I've never met a religious person who was like that, but I'm sure there are plenty out there. And so for Lenny to find someone who will allow her to say, why is God doing this to me and not judge her or lecture her is so important in her kind of coming to terms with her diagnosis. I love that. I had similar circumstances. I went to Catholic school growing up and my dad was maybe spiritual. My mom does not believe in anything. And they were just like, Catholic school is a good structure for you to to start out in. And so I had that same questioning of what do I believe? At home and school is so vastly different. But I also just love the idea that Lenny seems to really put forth that the church should have like an audience, like a priest has to have an audience yes. to be meaningful. And uh, that's just such a funny way to put it because even though I've seen empty chapels all the time or even a huge church, you can go into in Manhattan and, and it will be almost empty uh, during certain hours. Just the idea that they're supposed to have this rock star kind of presence (laughs) is what I thought of it. Or else they failed somehow. She's like, you know, right, wants to start exactly. a campaign. To, You're bad at this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. To put like asses in the seats. And it's like, it's not really how it works, Lenny. Uh, but it's great. Yeah. And you're right. We don't often see characters of religious characters like this. And there are lots of them in real life. But I think that was very unique. And I, I, like I said, that was one of my favorite relationships in the book. Thank you. Do we put the priest from Fleabag in this spectrum? <laughs> or? No, Corinne, that's a good question. Question. (laughs) (laughs) That was certainly not how we're used to seeing religious figures either. And they don't usually have trending hashtags hot priest. Yes. (laughs) I think Arthur might be a little too old to be a hot priest. I think so. I think so. But he's a clever priest. He's very funny. So I wanted to talk. I mean, obviously, you know, I think this book will make readers think about their own legacy and how we each leave our mark on the world and how we live through the people we've met and the relationships we've made. And and I wanted to read a section from page 64 that beautifully spoke to this and to your overall theme. It starts, somewhere out in the world are the people who touched us, 
or loved us or ran from us. In that way, we live on. If you go to the places we have been, you might meet someone who passed us once in a corridor, but forgot us before we were even gone. We are in the back of hundreds of people's photographs, moving, talking, blurring into the background of a picture two strangers have framed on their living room mantelpiece. And in that way, we will live on too. But it isn't enough. It isn't enough to have been a particle in the great extant of existence. I want, we want more. We want for people to know us, to know our story, to know who we are and who we will be. And after we've gone, to know who we were. So we will paint a picture for every year we have been alive. 100 paintings for 100 years. And even if they all end up in the bin, the cleaner who has to put them there will think, hey, that's a lot of paintings. And we will have told our story, scratching out 100 pictures intended to say Lenny and Margot were here. I just love that passage. I just wonder when you wrote that, were you like, yes, like this is it. Like this, this is the the book. It's so interesting because I kind of became obsessed with the idea of how many strangers' photos I'm in the back of many years before Lenny and Margot. And I'd written something for my creative writing module at my undergraduate degree. And it was nothing like that at all, but it had that same theme, that same, how many people's memories am I in the back of, you know, across the world that I don't know about. And so it popped back into my mind when I was trying to... have Lenny sort of crystallized in her mind what it is that they're trying to do and why they're trying to do it. And so for me, those two ideas just, it felt like they really fit together for me. And I think, yeah, for Lenny, it really is about, she's got so little time left and she really wants the world to know I was here and I was someone. And she talks a little bit about, there's a whiteboard above her bed, which is really common practice. I don't know if it's the same in the US, but the patient's name will be written in a pen that can be scrubbed out. And so Lenny becomes fixated with this idea that she's erasable, that she's going to die one day and they're going to rub her name off the board and she's just gonna be gone and so I think part of the reason that she's drawn to this project with Margot is to create something more permanent of herself and to really have that sort of lasting impression and a lot of that came from just before I started writing and it's so interesting because when you go back and look at what was going on in your life when you start writing Mm -hmm. everything sort of Mm -hmm. makes a lot more sense in terms of what came out and there was a friend of mine from my undergraduate years he had a terminal illness when I met her and she passed away just after we graduated the day that she passed away it was announced on Facebook and I had to go to the supermarket and I was in the supermarket and it was just all these people just living their lives getting on with things and I kind of thought nobody knows that someone lovely has passed away and she was a great person she was a really lovely person and she's gone and I was really struck by how for some people this day would always be remembered as the day she died and for other people it was just a Wednesday you know they were just doing their they were just doing their big shop just buying some bread and so a lot of the thoughts about Lenny came out of that feeling that makes sense and it is such a wild way to think about it that it's just a Wednesday and it and for one person it's it's a day that they will never forget so you explore in this book obviously some really heartfelt tender moments there's the friendship there's also the grappling with mortality and all of these beautiful things you've already been talking about but it's also very funny and I think it's even coming it's clearly you because it's coming across in this interview already (laughs) but you infuse Lenny and Margot with that same wit and sense of humor and they both use humor to deflect and endure it's not easy to pull off so it's very impressive and I understand you're a performer you do improv and stand-up do you think that's how 
how you were able to infuse this into your character. Yeah, I think so. And I think now that the book's been released in the UK, a lot of friends and family have said, oh, I can hear you in Lenny's voice. <laughs> and for me, there's a trouble that if I give Lenny a compliment, I'm giving myself a compliment. So I, I kind of tend not to talk too much about that kind of connection. But there's definitely seeds of me within Lenny. Yeah, so I started doing improv comedy. And improv is one of those things where you either love it or hate it, I think. And for some people, they're just like, oh, don't talk to me about improv. How embarrassing. For other people, they're more, oh, okay, that might be fun. And the thing that improv taught me, and I started doing it just at night classes after work, when I was about three or four drafts into Lenny and Margot, was it taught me to just let go a little bit. So, you know, we'd do the scene in it, or I'd watch a scene in improv that was really funny, and then I'd be like, it's gone. We can never get this back. And I think a lot of the call to writing is about preserving. You know, it's about preservation. Like, I write because I want to keep this thought, or I want to keep this memory, and I want to keep... It's all about keeping and hoarding thoughts and ideas, whereas with improv, it's very much like giving everything your best shot and accepting that by the time it's finished, it's completely gone. So for me, improv really just taught me to just kind of throw more things at the page and the book got a little bit quirkier as a result of that because I just went for it more. And I think just being around funny people through osmosis, you just soak up the kind of (laughs) the rhythm, the dialogue, you know, Mm. like I'm blessed to be around a lot of really funny people whose essences I like to think I've stolen. I had an office mate at my first job at a law firm who did improv and I didn't honestly this was a hundred years ago it feels like but uh, (laughs) I didn't quite understand the difference like I thought oh stand up he's like well we're not necessarily funny and I'm like yeah, but, so then I went to see your show and I was like, oh, this is a whole nother thing. Meaning the way in which you have to feed off each other and be reactive. And like you said, create something in real time. It's amazing. It's very in the moment. Very yes, in the moment. very yeah. in the moment. And I can see what you're saying. If you kind of try to apply that to your writing, how you would get freer and quirkier and be more open to seeing where it would go, because that's what you have to do. I guess with improv too, it's also you have to trust who you're with. So much trust, yeah. yeah. And I think one of the first things that our tutor in improv taught us, so the first thing he said was the first rule is stop trying to be funny. And you could see it completely divide the minds of the group because for some people it clicked and for other people they were like, what? This is comedy improv. How is this possible? But honestly, the minute that we all stopped trying to be funny, it all became a lot funnier. And I think that was the same with my writing. Sort of once I stopped trying to make it sad and I just kind of really got into how Lenny would be feeling, it became a lot easier for the scenes. Eventually, other people have told me made them cry, but it was that not stop trying so hard that (laughs) that I really found helpful, which sounds paradoxical. Learning to dance is the same way. You have to learn the steps. You're being taught the steps, but at the same time, you're supposed to forget it. You can't be in your mind. You can't be in your head about it. Otherwise, it's just not going to work. Yeah, absolutely. And I would imagine it's nice to have the balance. I mean, writing is so solitary. And to then be able to do the improv, which, as we're saying, is so much about feeding off other people. It must give you a nice balance. Yeah, absolutely. And I was doing my PhD at the same time as writing Lenny and Margot, which, again, was very solitary, sitting in an office typing. And so I think those poor people at improv, I would kind of burst into the room like, humans, other humans, let me talk to you. Oh, my gosh. Well, so actually, this leads nicely to my next question, which is about sort of your road to publication. As we said in your bio, and as you've just mentioned, you were getting and got your PhD. And that was all happening when this visit from Lenny came to you. But then it was seven years, you noted, where you immersed yourself in this world and this story. And 
we're always fascinated as writers ourselves to hear what those years look like for you. Obviously, you were doing a few things. Then how the writing then evolved to getting your agent and, and getting your book deal. Yeah, it's such an interesting process. And I remember when I was writing, I just absorbed other writers' stories of how it worked. So I kind of love talking about it. So as you said, I started writing the book in 2014. So I was 22 at the time. And I wrote the first draft in about six months. And over those six months, I finished my master's and started my PhD. And then the PhD, I kind of looked around and was like, yikes, this is a lot of work and a lot of reading. And so I'd kind of spend my days staring at Word and then I'd go home and like open Word and be like, no, not today. I can't. And so I think for me, it was that balancing of writing quite technical, analytical things and then having the energy at the end of the day to, to write sort of more creatively. And so I sort of just very slowly kept plugging away after work at the weekends. And around about 2016, 2017, I was like, right, it's ready. So I wrote my pitches to agents and I looked for agents online and I sent the book out and everybody rejected it. (laughs) (laughs) Like unanimously. And what was really strange was they all had more or less the exact same feedback. It's too melancholy. It gets really slow at the end. We need more happening in Margot's life. And I was like, this is like five, six agents all telling me the exact same thing. And I was like, nobody knows the market better than these people. So I was like, right, we're going to do this. So I stopped searching for an agent. I took the file. I put the Lenny chapters in one document. I put the Margot chapters in another. I completely split the book in half and I basically just rewrote the whole thing from the beginning. Wow. And so, (laughs) which there were points in that where I would just look at it and be like, I think I've made it worse. (laughs) (laughs) This might be the, the thing that breaks it, but that took about two and a bit years. And then by early 2019, I was ready to look for an agent. And that was how I ended up with my agent, Sue, in the UK. Wow. It's good that, first of all, that you got feedback from agents is amazing to begin with and that it was useful feedback. But the fact that it was all consistent, it was great. Sometimes you get one saying one thing, one saying another, and then you're already questioning yourself. So, I mean, that was actually probably helpful that it was a unified message. Absolutely. I was so grateful for that feedback. And I think because academia is a world that turns on rejection, I'd already been hardened quite a lot to rejection. I got used to presenting at conferences and having people ask questions that fundamentally question your entire field. I just sort of got used to it. And so my agency was actually one of the agents who rejected it. And she'd said to me in her email, she said, keep in touch and let me know how you get on. And so about two years later, I just sent her a little email like, hello, I don't know if you remember me, Lenny and Margot. And I was like, but I went away and and here it is. And within a few days, I was in London meeting her and she was like, I want this book. You know, it's one of those things where I'm so grateful to her that she said, keep in touch. And I'm so grateful for the feedback of her and the other agents. And it's such an unusual route into being agented. (laughs) I just expected her to not remember me or to be like, oh God, she came back. I was just trying to No, that's a no again. (laughs) (laughs) During that time, were you convinced like this is something I have to do? I have to publish this book because you do have a lot of things going on. It doesn't seem I mean, how invested were you in any one of them or all of them? I think I've always been one of those people that has I might be the Catholic upbringing, but I always sort of think everything I'm doing is terrible. So I kind of had this plan that once I had this plan that once I got to 100 rejections, I would just self-publish. And that's not to say self-publishing is ever a last resort because for a lot of people, it's the first choice and it's the right choice. But for me, right. that was a plan that I 
had, you know, 100 years, 100 rejections, ah. and I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll publish it by myself. And I think for me, the first time I knew that it was maybe something was I'd given the first draft to my sisters, and I have two younger sisters, and they're both quite tough, isn't quite the right word, but they're, they're hard people to make cry. And they both messaged me having read the ending, and they were like, one of them was crying at the university library, the other was crying in her bed. <laughs> she, they both said, you've made me cry. And so that was the first time I thought, like, I made someone feel something with these words that I've written down. You know, maybe there's something to this, maybe there's something here. And that really blessed my sisters for doing that for me, really kept me going. That is great. I love that. And that's just something we hear across the board. It's the little things. You have to hold on to those little things because it can be a really long and tough journey, certainly with a lot of rejection. But if you hold on to those little pieces that make it feel worth pursuing, that's how you come out on the on the other side. Yes, absolutely. And when I was teaching, when I was a lecturer, I used to try and always give my students a little nugget of hope, even in even on the worst bits of feedback. I always tried to do that, you know, to sort of pass it forward, if that makes yeah. sense. So you said Lenny came to you one night and changed your life, but we've already talked also about improv as a tool of letting go, which is where I'm going with this because Kate and I, were both lawyers, we're both writers. Letting go is something important to learn. It goes against our nature, maybe, and certainly it goes against a lot of our practical knowledge that we've acquired. So we do that through astrology. Maybe we should try improv, but ours <laughs> ours is, is astrology. And so we ask all of our authors your astrological sign and whether you relate to it at all. Yes, I am a Gemini. So both of my parents are really into astrology, which I guess built into the whole Catholicism astrology ah. dichotomy I lived through. So I know that Geminis are known for having two sides to them. And I would say that's definitely evident in my writing. You know, as you're saying, Lenny and Margot really blends like poignant, very sad themes with cheeky kind of humor. I do see that in myself. And obviously there's, you know, one of the characters is an astronomer. So I do, I love stars and symbolism and, and those kinds of things. Yes. My husband is a Gemini. I love Geminis. So it's a sign I work well with. And I have a son who's a Gemini who I'm trying to understand. So perhaps I should call you because currently I call Corinne to understand because we don't like to say like the two-faced or, you know... <laughs> Yeah. We prefer mm. that there's dualities and that, you know, yeah. what yes. he really can, at least my son, can be two different personalities within a given moment, <laughs> it, it seems like. But they are never boring. That is for sure. That's yeah. right. I was going to say, that's what keeps my life interesting. And I love that. <laughs> so when you say your parents were into it, like, how did that manifest itself? Well, my mum would read her horoscope every week in the uh, TV guide at the back. There was like the horoscope at the back. Mm -hmm. And then my dad, who's also a Gemini, he wrote to this woman who's an astrologer and she used to write him personalized like astrology things and post them oh, to the house. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. then um, he tried to stop the service and couldn't. So for the rest of like, for another 10 years, we still had this lovely sweet lady writing him <laughs> astrology letters. Oh yeah. And so I think that was just another element that kind of built into my kind of what do I believe, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh -huh. Because it's so far removed from everything I was learning at school. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And I kind of became obsessed with the idea that like I have two handwriting styles. I have like a really bubbly kind of rounded one and I have a very neat joined up one. And I became obsessed with the idea that that's because I'm a Gemini and that's my two sides, my kind of comic and my oh. serious <laughs> side. 
think so. I could see I that. Like yeah. that. I like that. Well, we are we are fire signs over here. We are Leo and Aries. So, well, I did want to, of course, ask you about the adaptation that I understand that the 100 Years of Lenny and Margot is being adapted into a feature film by Sony Columbia Pictures. So, of course, we need to hear more about that. And <laughs> if you'll have any involvement in it, you know, some authors are very involved. Some are like, I wrote the book, you have at it. So we'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, it's been such an unexpected thing to happen. I know for a lot of writers, it's the same, but you know, when I'm writing, I'm watching a film in my head. And so I have, you know, my Lenny and Margot soundtrack and I play that when I write certain songs, match up with certain scenes and I can really see it. But the idea that anybody wants to turn it into a film just absolutely blows my mind. And it's still at the very, very early stages. So there's actually kind of, I have very little that's exciting Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I can say, but I think it really goes back to what we were saying before about letting go. And when I was looking through the contract, which was, I want to say, 60, 70 pages long and trying to read it and understand it, I (laughs) sort of had a little bit of a panic and I was like, oh, what am I doing? I'm giving away my baby and I'm going to let go of control. And I think that is part of the process, letting go of control. And even with the book, you know, getting the cover designs and seeing a design that in some international countries, I've been like, oh, that doesn't really match up with what I see as Lenny and Margot. And it's about letting go and trusting other professionals to do the very best for Lenny and Margot that they can do. In terms of involvement, I would love to be involved. I've had a Skype with some of the producers, which was lovely. Oh. I had a Pinterest board for Lenny and Margot with all my research pictures and things, and so they wanted a copy of that. But other than that, it's still such early days that that's all I know, but I would love to be as involved as they will let me without being one of those, like an annoying author that's kind (laughs) of like, no, this is how her hair should be, or this is how this should be. And, you know, my partner and and I joke, because obviously it's it's an American company that maybe Lenny and Margot will become like ranch owners and it'll be set in Texas and, you know, I've got to let go and just let them. Yeah. Well, that's hard. But, you know, Celeste Ng said about Little Fires, that the good thing is that story, the book you wrote, will always be there, right? Like it always remains its own thing. And then whatever they do with it after is another thing, right? Which oftentimes, as we've seen from so many really well done adaptations, is a equally amazing thing. Right. Second life. Yeah. But it is hard. Yeah. One of my friends said to me, you have to think of it as an interpretation. Yes. It's an interpretation of your right. words. It's not a canon. This is what you wrote. And, and, you know, you've got to let it breathe a little bit, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. And it'll get more exposure for your book. I don't know. I kind of like the idea of people being like, oh, the book's so much better. And you're like, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So we wanted to wrap up by asking you some things that you're loving right now. Books, TV shows, movies, people. One of our favorite things from this show is just going down rabbit holes of creators and content that we just love. And we were curious if you had anything to share. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so lucky. And I didn't know this was a thing that happens when you become an author, that they start sending you books. (laughs) I I can finally afford books and they're sending them to me for free. (laughs) I just read Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead and it just absolutely blew me away. It was just the most gorgeous book and it's a lovely read. And I also read If I Had Your Face by Frances Char a few weeks ago, Mm -hmm. which was, again, a gorgeous read. And Read at the Bone by Jacqueline Woodson, which has been out for a little while now, but again. Uh, set in New York and just gorgeous and I've just finished this week I've just finished How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House by Cherry Jones Oh, I haven't heard of that 
but it's set in a fictional town in Barbados and it's about a young woman living in a domestic violence situation set against a very wealthy woman living in a tourist area and it's just blew me away it's a little bit of tough going I would say so you know mm-hmm. some trigger warnings but it was absolutely gorgeous Profound. yeah absolutely I love that I'm much more of a TV than a film person and I don't know if that says anything about me but um... <laughs> TV's just so good right now I, I think everyone is right now yeah I think it's the ability on lockdown here to just binge through something is quite a nice investment and Shrill I've just watched seasons one and two of Shrill with A.D. Bryant and the third season I know has just come out in the US but hopefully in the UK soon and I'm actually a massive fan of SNL um, we can't get it here so like I watch all the clips on YouTube oh my and- gosh I didn't know you couldn't get it there. Okay. I loved the driver's license parody. Did you see that one? Yes. Very funny. A bunch of guys around a pool table (laughs) singing an 18-year-old's power ballad. It was cracked me up. That's a good one. Every Sunday morning, I'm like, right, what was SNL? And I go through every clip and watch them. And Schitt's Creek as well, I just got into because it's been put on Netflix here. And I think I tend to lean towards comedies more than dramas. And I don't know if that's because the world's right now and I kind of need a bit of a lift and there's a show here called Derry Girls which I would definitely definitely recommend to Corinne as a fellow Catholic school student (laughs) and it's an it's an Irish comedy series and it's got the young girl who is a key role in Bridgerton I won't say who she plays in Bridgerton but she is an important person in Bridgerton okay it's an Irish produced series and it's about a group of Catholic school students living in Northern Ireland during the crisis during the the troubles troubles, don't they and it's so interesting because it's all the 90s teenage age drama set against the context of just having soldiers kind of get on their bus and check for bombs and so on. And it's a comedy and it's just 10 out of 10. Oh, I gotta check this out. fantastic. Really good. That's Dairy Girls. D-E-R-R-Y, yes. 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 And then how about your writing? Is there any, are you working on another book or anything you can share on that? Yes, I'm so lucky that my deal here in the UK was a two book deal, which has just brought me so much peace and has just yes. been so, such, a, such an incredible privilege. And I think this is because of the whole PhD while writing thing, but I've been writing three books at the same time. And I, I, think, I think it's just that my brain likes to have multiple projects to kind of switch between um, rather than having all my eggs in one bar. But also, I'm not a Gemini and I'm the same way. I need that kind of multiple outlets for sure. Yeah, almost like a backup plan and it just kind of keeps my creative energy kind of ticking over. So I finished one and I got to the end and classic me kind of like doubting myself. I was like, ooh. I don't know about this. <laughs> so I, I've sent it to my agent to have a look over and just kind of be like, is this just the ramblings of a woman whose country has been on lockdown for the last like <laughs> six months? Is it going to be very obvious that I needed to go outside and see some fresh air and, you know, these kinds of things? Right. But um, yes, wow. but yeah, I'm loving it. So three okay. novels. Yes. So one of them <laughs> will be out at some point or more than one. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> Yes, I could get myself a like Gemini alter ego pen name and sort of just start, you know, (laughs) do different genres. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Well, this has been such a treat. Thank you so much. We love this. I'm holding it up against beautiful cover. You should be very excited. I think there's a lot of big things coming your way. Clearly, I mean, she's already Clearly. she's already experiencing them. 
the 100 years of Lenny and Margot is out. Now we'll be holding this episode. Do you want to tell our listeners where they can find you? Social media, website, whatever you have to share. Yes, absolutely. You can find me on Instagram. It's at It's Marianne Cronin. And on Twitter, we couldn't fit my name in. So it's at It's M Cronin. And uh, you can find all my updates of uh, releases, pictures I take holding up my book, trying to get my face in and into the square <laughs> with the book. Um, and many, many pictures of my little cat called Puffin. I was going to say, don't forget the cat. Yes. So- <laughs> my little angel but yeah thank you so much for having me oh, thank you thank you and best of luck this has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate if you enjoyed this show please tell the complicated women in your life and the men who love them yes tell them to listen and then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and of course share on social media Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore Women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated. <laughs>